The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and this is our fourth episode on a renewed run for our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. In our initial series, we received significant listener input concerning the relevance of archaeology to contemporary situations. In this uh, present series of programs, I'm trying to balance the archaeological focus with uh, topics of typical archaeological intrigue, if you will, aspects that are directly relevant to the world around us and not necessarily to the, pa- to the far distant past. Archaeology teaches us about the, the past in ways that are widely applicable to the present and the future as well. And this involves not only scientific approaches that are brought to bear on interpretations of ancient cultures, but also to issues that confront us in the present world. And as we discussed last week in our program on Afghanistan, war is a particularly particularly intriguing venue for uh, transposing the lessons of archaeology. And in that uh, connection, this particular program is connected to and concentrated on uh, a very unique aspect of war, uh, the recovery of remains that were left behind during previous uh, endeavors during, during war campaigns. Uh, I'm talking specifically about JPAC, which is the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command of the U.S. military. It's located on the island of Oahu in Hawaii and was activated actually relatively uh, recently in 2003. This is a very unique operation and one that I think uh, provides us with a tremendous perspective on what archaeology can actually do in contemporary situations and in situations of conflict. Um, my guest for this particular program is, uh, is uh, my special guest is Dr. William Belcher, who uh, is one of the leading uh, personnel in the JPEC operation. Uh, uh, Bill is an uh, experienced archaeologist who had an extensive training. He received his BA and MA in anthropology from Western Washington University. And uh, in 1988, he received his master's in science and quaternary studies from the University of Maine. In 1998, Bill completed his PhD in anthropology for the University of Wisconsin at Madison. 
and uh, he became a registered professional archaeologist in 2000, uh, 2003. He became a diplomate of the diplomate of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, and has over 25 years of archaeological and laboratory experience, and has supervised excavations and laboratory analysis for over 20 years. Prior to coming to JPAC. Uh, Dr. Belcher conducted archaeological research in many places, specifically in northern New England and the Maritime Provinces, the Pacific Northwest, and in Pakistan, which incidentally is where I met him. Since coming to the JPAC, he has led recovery and investigative operations in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, the United Kingdom, the Republic of Kribati, Papua New Guinea, the Republic of Palau, the United States, in Washington, Oregon, and California, and in North Korea. Belcher has published over 30 articles and reports in professional archaeological, anthropological, anthropological, and historical journals and books. Bill currently serves as the Deputy Laboratory Director for the Central Identification Laboratory Section of the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command. It's my honor and pleasure to welcome you, Bill Belcher. Thanks so much for participating. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. This is a, a wonderful opportunity. Bill, I'd like to have you expand a little bit on the mission of JPEG, and uh, obviously it's a very relatively new operation, although it builds from a previous entity. Tell us a little about the evolution of JPEG and what its charge is and how you see it functioning. Well, I'll, the, the charge basically is to provide the fullest possible accounting of America's missing service members. Our primary mission is to look from World War II, the Cold War, the Korean War, Vietnam, and uh, anything um, more recent. So um, we primarily look at that, but that doesn't say that when um, we do specialty cases where we look at things prior to that, because we have had several cases that we looked at from the Civil War, the War of 1812, Buffalo Soldiers, those kinds of things. But our primary mission is from World War One, or excuse me, World War Two on. We actually just identified um, an individual from World War One as well. But the history of the organization is that since the Civil War, the United States military has set up a central identification facility as a primary mission to help identify and return to the families uh, the fallen uh, missing service members. But it became a, a much more scientific operation uh, after um, World War II. And so, so, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, in... And what had happened is, after Vietnam War, there was in in 1973 there was a, a laboratory set up in Thailand called Siltai, Central Identification Laboratory in Thailand, and then it eventually moved uh, to Hawaii. And then there were two organizations established in the 90s. One was the U.S. Army Central Identification Laboratory Hawaii, and the other one was the Joint um, Task Force Full Accounting. And so in 2003, we became a joint Navy command or a joint command. Um, and we currently have about 400 personnel, and we're going to be expanding shortly. Now, those of us who are old enough to remember this uh, certainly can recall that after the Vietnam conflict, there was a tremendous outcry about the identifications of POWs and MIAs. Uh, MIAs in particular, uh, I would say, after 1975, after the conflict ended, there was a, a, a tremendous concern about that. Was that a critical factor in the elevation of the profile of JPAC? Did it have a direct impact on the formation and the promotion of JPAC? Was, was that what, what really got it going or no? I think that, well, I, I think in a sense that is correct. 
Um, but the U.S. government has had a priority since the Civil War and set up these facilities, but they were temporary. After the Vietnam War, this became a permanent facility, and um, permanent mission was to continue to work, recover, and identify the uh, individuals from the Vietnam War. In the 1980s, our mission expanded to include uh, worldwide missions, as we call them, or World War II, Cold War, and the Korean War. So if you had to describe how the focus changes uh, through time, is there any, I mean, when do you get to do MIAs from Vietnam versus, say, uh, going back to looking at World War I or Civil War or more recent conflicts? How does, how does the, the, uh, the chronology of these events come forth, and, and where do you get specific charges to do particular projects? Well, our, pr our primary mission, like I said, is... Um, as possible accounting of missing service members. But what um, our fo primary focus is currently is Southeast Asia, and then we have programmed in uh, other aspects of it, um, dealing with World War II, the Korean War, and uh, the Cold War. But it, it's primarily we set up um, this, this week been going through an operational planning briefing for fiscal year 2013, and so we've been going through the specific sites and mission dates that we're going to be going on for um, the next year. So the Southeast Asia focus, I assume that's obviously related to Vietnam, the Cambodian conflicts and, 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 and the wars that are occurring in those areas. What about the more recent conflicts, say, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan? What's going on with that? Well, the what we have done, and, and I, you and I have talked about this before, but um, primarily our focus in working in Iraq currently is just dealing with um, assisting the uh, military police groups and the war crimes investigation teams uh, to recover and identify and at least document some of the atrocities that occurred during the, the, the Ba'athist regime of uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, your background is particularly fascinating, Bill. We'll get into that in a little bit, but let's talk a, l a little bit about the infrastructure at JPEG. I mean, you obviously have folks who are experienced in forensic anthropology and folks who are experienced in archaeology and folks who are, uh, obviously have a tremendous training in mapping and remote sensing and the detection of the potential possibilities of recovering people in places that they might not have suspected. How can you, uh, how can you give it, lead us a little bit through uh, the infrastructure within JPEG and how it functions on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the science? Well, and what we start off with is that we have a, um, a J2 or intelligence section, and they're responsible for researching and um, the historical research and putting up cases that are, or areas that we need to investigate or look for sites. And so it's very similar to the way archaeology is done normally, but we have it separated. We have professional historians and, and analysts from the military that look at the uh, historical information, and we determine different areas that we're going to go and look for sites. We mount an investigation team to go out and actually put boots on the ground, so to speak, and we go in and, and they begin to look for those sites and document them. It would be the same thing as like a survey, a reconnaissance. Like an archaeological survey. Exactly. And but using... From, yeah, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. And then from that information, then we um, see, do we have enough information to 
um, make a decision to excavate. And that's the whole process of the same thing where we go through a, a mitigation in archaeology and contract archaeology, and we begin to, uh, then we go out and launch an excavation team. Because we want to make sure that we're going to be successful and recover the remains uh, of these missing service members. And so there's a very, very discreet protocol that obviously takes its blueprint from uh, contemporary archaeological practice uh, in the applied domain, correct? Correct, Joe. It's, it's something that um, if we would hire, when we, when we do hire uh, new archaeologists, they come in here. Um, the protocol, the system is very similar to what they've been uh, used to doing. The only thing, a difference is that there's more, uh, we follow some certain kinds of forensic procedures dealing with um, referring to the material as biological evidence or material evidence for the artifacts, and it follows, instead of having like an artifact catalog, we'd have a same chain or a signed chain of custody and those kinds of um, legal issues that we um, work with within the forensic community. So, obviously, a lot of the individuals who are recruited or who are interested in, uh, in following up a career at, at JPAC or if there are cons uh, similar institutions would have to go through a very, very rigorous training that would involve not only traditional archaeological methods and, and obviously the, uh, the rigorous training that's involved with that, but also have to have a fair amount of information and experience and knowledge on anatomy, physical anthropology, and a variety of other different techniques. And uh, we will talk about that in a couple of minutes after we take a break. And we'll be back with Dr. William Belcher from JPAC after these words. Thank you. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Play ball! If you're looking to talk baseball, even in the offseason, look no further than the King's Corner Talking Baseball with former World Series champion Jim Layritz. Jim's known for a rather controversial stance during his show. He's brutally honest and ready to talk with current and former players, owners, and other key figures to bring you baseball from an insider's view. You won't want to miss a single episode. The King's Corner Talking Baseball with Jim Layritz is heard every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel. When you're 11 years old, it seems as if nobody understands what you go through. You're not quite a teenager yet, but you're definitely not a little kid anymore. Tune in to Life at 11 for the answers and support you need to get through this time in your life. Your hosts have some amazing life experiences, and because of this, they have the know-how to get you through 11 and on to 12 and beyond. It's a tough point in your life right now. Get the advice you need on Life at 11, Monday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Kids channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And our program today is focused on JPAC, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, which is charged with locating uh, missing soldiers and uh, victims of war in a variety of different types of conflicts. I'm talking to Dr. Bill Belcher, who is one of the lead figures in the JPAC organization at this point. And uh, Bill is has been trained as an archaeologist. He received his PhD at the University of Wisconsin and made a transition, as many archaeologists have, from an academic to domain to a largely applied venue, and he's done it very, very skillfully. And for any archaeologists out there in the audience, I'd like for Bill to sort of recount his training and his, if you will, awakening when he realized that the world of archaeology is much greater than simply uh, getting your PhD and, and teaching in a university. Bill, tell us a little bit about your training, beginning with undergraduate and then moving towards your uh, PhD and, and how you your career moved from the strict academic venue to a more applied field. Let us uh, let us in on that. Well, when I, when I was an undergraduate in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University, um, I was very interested in archaeology. And, you know, as a side note, this is back in the early 80s, and so I had you know, I'd seen Indiana Jones, you know, the first movie, and I was very excited by that. So, you know, and I think that sort of led me into taking my first anthropology class. And it, it created a, a much more vivid picture of the world than you would see in any movie. And so I got very excited by anthropology. And so my training was, even though I emphasized archaeology, it was very traditional four-field approach where you discussed linguistics, cultural anthropology, physical anthropology, and archaeology. And at that point, um, Dr. David Sanger, who was at the University of Maine, uh, was at Western as a visiting professor, and he invited me to um, apply to the program in Quaternary Studies, which is a multidisciplinary program at the University of Maine. And tell, us, so, tell us a little bit uh, what Quaternary Studies mean for folks in the audience who don't know what that means. Well, it, it's uh, the last two million years, roughly, of, of uh, geologic time. And what they were trying to do is to understand how humans adapted to and became evolved into, or hominids evolved into modern humans, as well as looking, and that was a whole general trend, but just also looking at interdisciplinary archaeology. And that's what intrigued me, was reconstructing the environment and understanding the adaptations that humans have to certain environments and how that changes. And so this seemed, it was a very unique program at the time. And so you got to the Quaternary Institute at, at the University of Maine, and that was very focused. Obviously, they're looking at geological aspects related to archaeology and the human side of it, the cultural side of it. And then, then what happened? Well, the interesting thing that happened was um, I was very interested in maritime adaptations, how people were reflected and uh, adapted to marine resources in the sea makes sense that the University of Maine were on the Gulf of Maine and all that. But the 
the intriguing thing was that I just got interested in looking at animal bones. And so I began to study human, human osteology as well as uh, comparative osteology of, of different animals, particularly with fish. And so it's an interesting thing that although I'm considered uh, an expert in fish bones, you know, I, I exclusively work now with uh, uh, human osteology. So, and that's what got me interested. It was more of a, a need that I had to, because I was interested in how people were adapted to the environment. And so it became sort of a, a niche or a niche that I could fulfill because I needed the information for um, my interest and my research. So um, I began to study animal and human bones at that time. And then you, uh, your career took you beyond the master's degree at, at the University of Maine. You moved on to Wisconsin, correct? Uh, yes, Joe. And so when, when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I began working uh, on uh, fish bones from several different sites in Pakistan, working with uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knoyer. And so it's, that sort of expanded and resulted in my dissertation where I continued to work on the archaeological materials, but in order to develop ideas on what these remains might mean, the patterns that I was seeing, what kinds of fish bones were found in different houses and what, uh, and whatnot, and how they were butchered, I began to study the modern, uh, uh, fishmongers or fish butcherers as well as modern, traditional um, fishing practices on the coast in the interior of Pakistan. And so as you were developing your professional interests and specializing in an area that you were going to do your Ph.D. on, obviously related to the Indus culture, correct? Yes. Um, did you have any vision of what you were going to do, what your future was like, where you were going professionally? Uh, take us through that as you're progressing with your Ph.D. research and moving along in archaeology as a, a potential uh, Ph.D. and uh, accomplished researcher? Where, where were you uh, mentally in terms of, of, of uh, envisioning your, your future? I think like a lot of um, Ph.D. students or other graduate students, we envision ourselves eventually to be working within a university setting, teaching and doing research. But at the same time, I recognized that um, there were very few jobs available because I, I started to apply for jobs, and I was getting uh, rejection letter after rejection letter. And so it's very difficult to apply prior to having your PhD to begin with. And so what had happened was during the time that I was at the University of Maine, I had done a lot of cultural resource management or contract archaeology, as it's also known, uh, where the university had contracts to do archaeological surveys and excavations and areas behind the, um, the headwaters or the head ponds of the dams uh, that were coming up for relicensing by the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commissions. And so they were, they were all federal projects, and we were given the task of doing the archaeology to see what kinds of, of sites were being damaged. And so I had already had a really good feel for doing that kind of archaeology. And so at, at the point where I was getting, uh, I couldn't find an academic position, uh, you, you need to make a decision to go into cultural resource management, I think, is the most, uh, most places where most people go. And uh, what pushed you into um, making that decision? Obviously, the job situation wasn't great. Did you go for a postdoc? Did you try to uh, pursue that particular line? Because a lot of graduates and recent PhDs do that for a couple of years. What did you do? Well, I wanted to. One of the things that I had noticed with uh, my cohort, my my 
graduate student friends and the class that I was working with at the University of Wisconsin, they were going from postdoc to postdoc to postdoc, and it was almost like they were becoming migrant workers, where they would work for some place for nine months and then move on to another university. And I really didn't want to do that to my family. So you already had a family at the time, so yeah. uh, there was an urgency to get a full-time job, obviously. So we, you know, I, at first I was working for a contract firm in uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and then a friend of mine called me and said, hey, we, we're, we're looking to expand our archaeologists and anthropologists positions at, at that time it was called U.S. Army Central ID Lab in Hawaii. And we need, you, you would be perfect for this job because you've got overseas experience, you've got experience with fragmentary bone, which a lot of um, physical anthropologists did not, don't have experience with that. Forensic people do, but not a lot of physical anthropologists. And you've had, you have human osteology, you have a, bit, a strong, very strong background in different kinds of uh, skeletal anatomy, as well as working in very austere conditions. And so I applied, and then I came out here as uh, a pretty much a low-level um, staff archaeologist and uh, physical anthropologist. But what about the forensic training, the formal forensic training? Did you have any of that by the time you got to, uh, to JPEC or no? No, I didn't, I didn't have any uh, formal forensic training, and this is back in the uh, late 90s. And what they were looking for were people that had the um, skill set to do the field operations or the excavations and, and not get, um, for lack of a better term, too freaked out about being in pretty austere conditions in Vietnam and Papua New Guinea were the two places I went first on my first two missions, as we call them, or excavations. You know, that's interesting because we encountered the same situation in Iraq when we did the uh, backup excavations in support of the Saddam Hussein trial. Uh, one of the issues that we had was that the forensic folks did not really have the archaeological background and the archaeology people did not have the forensic background, but once their particular lines and charges were identified, it was very possible to integrate these two folks, these two sets of professionals rather, and to develop sort of a symbiotic relationship with them. Did you find the same thing happening to you at JPEC when you got there? Well, what happened is when I first got here, um, I took it upon myself to become more, and I don't want to use the word self-trained because a lot of people help me, um, I didn't have a lot of formal training in forensics, but I, you know, all the things that forensic anthropologists see, burned bone, cut marks, uh, saw marks, the kinds of things that would be associated with um, criminal or modification activities, these are the same kinds of things I saw with animal bone. So it, to me, it just takes a different kind of a mindset where you're taking your previous experience and, and, and applying to a new situation. And you just can't say, well, I'm not trained in forensics, so therefore um, I can't apply for this job or I can't do it. And even today when we're looking at applicants, I, I look for applicants that might have the same background that I had because um, I think I was pretty successful in adapting my previous experience to this new job situation, as well as taking it upon myself to uh, learn a lot more about uh, forensic anthropology in the field. And so currently, in the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, I'm now the secretary of the physical anthropology section. And so I've moved up professionally within the field um, uh, fairly well, I think. 
But but this is again this is a, a skill set that you developed as you say self taught and individually trained. Is it still possible to uh, to get a job in your operation? Obviously, you're the person who filters the applications with that same background that you had coming in. Well, those are the, we're we're currently going to be expanding our operation quite a bit because we're opening up. There's a new building that's going to be completed. That's a state of the art facility for our laboratory in 2013. And so we tend to focus on the programs that have physical anthropology, but we also are hiring now as a separate track archaeologists. And on that note, we're going to take another break and we'll be back and discuss uh, JPAC and the uh, responsibility that Dr. Belcher has in running a good portion of that operation after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with a segment on archaeology and war. In this case, uh, we are uh, concentrating on JPAC, um, which is the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command in Hawaii, which is charged with the mission of uh, tracing and finding uh, uh, POWs and MIAs in, in previous conflicts, and generally... It is involved with the uh, institution of forensic methods for recovery of uh, victims of war. I'm speaking to Dr. Bill Belcher, who is currently the deputy laboratory director of the uh, Central Identification Laboratory section of JPAC. And uh, we had discussed how Bill's career emerged from his uh, traditional training as a Ph.D. archaeologist 
and he has risen to this uh, position of key responsibility as the deputy deputy laboratory director. Bill, tell us a little bit about the personnel that are in uh, that are in JPAC, how it's compartmentalized, how the various wings work together, and uh, what kind of projects you're undertaking as as this goes forward. You had talked about an expansion, which. Uh, which is a wonderful thing in these difficult times, and, and, and clearly your mission is very, very important. Tell us a little bit about uh, how the operation works internally and, and how you, uh, you're moving along on various projects. Sure. We have um, several different sections within the in JPAC, and there's an administrative section, and everything in the military is always talking about... Um, J1, J2, these are different sections within a joint command. And so our J1 section is our administrative section, and this is composed of all the people that deal with getting the personnel hired, advertising, payroll, all the administrative duties, and very dedicated. And and I would emphasize that everybody here has a special sense of the mission, regardless if they're like a clerk or um, somebody that just deals with payroll. They, they recognize that this is a special mission, and so there's, there's a certain level of dedication to make sure that everything runs smoothly. And then um, I mentioned earlier our J2 section, and we call it the intelligence section, but it's, it's where the uh, research, um, historical research is conducted, and then, and then they branch off and do the, the boots-on-the-ground investigation or the archaeological surveys. And so, you know, what we're doing now is that we're, we're fielding recovery leaders, as we call them, or archaeologists on those teams as well now, whereas in the past that hasn't been the case because we just didn't have the personnel. And now that we're expanding, um, it's becoming, and I, I don't want to use it to say it's becoming more professional, but we're becoming, um, we're able to zero in on more things and, and, and tackle some more professional skills. Well, one of the things, yeah, I, well, I was just going to cut in for a second. So what you're saying is, and, and I got this sense from you uh, early on, that um, many people sort of had to wear different hats and, and, and uh, function in, in a variety of different uh, capacities simultaneously. Are you getting to the point right now where there are groups and specializations, you have a historic documentation team, you have archaeologists, you have the forensic folks, or are they still integrating and doing multiple tasks? Well, what we had done before is that we wanted to hire um, people that either had a lot of archaeology experience and some forensics or a lot of forensic and some archaeology experience so that we were we had a lot more flexibility. And so I see that what's happening now is that um, as we expand and get a larger group, we will have people that do more laboratory work and less field work, and it, it's becoming more compartmentalized, and I think that's because it's actually way more efficient. And so in a sense, we do still have to wear uh, multiple hats is what we call the recovery leader because we have to um, deal with negotiations and land compensation and um, managing personnel, uh, managing resources, money, um, getting from point A to point B within these countries. And so I feel that a lot of the experiences that I had working in cultural resource management, you know, it seems weird, like at the University of Maine where we're on the Penobscot River, but those skills are 
essential. And those are the kinds of things that you, unless you go into a cultural resource management program or um, have that experience, it's going to be very hard to take those skills and put them into the real world. So I think that one of the key things about my background was that I had many years of cultural resource management experience, so I could take those skills with me and use them in the field doing this uh, particular job. So the flexibility is really critical, and the ability to adapt to different situations is, is very important. The flexibility and having any kind of supervisory experience within the field or um, managerial experience and, and just having the experience of organizing, organizing a small to large project. Take us, if you would, through a, a, a recent project, one that you think is uh, especially productive and one that you think is going to bear significant results either now or in the past and how that starts from square one and uh, manifests itself through fruition. Uh, Guide us through that, if you would. Well, I'll I'll walk you through, if we have time, two cases, but dealing with um, Southeast Asia cases, any kind of a case that we do there, primarily their aircraft losses. And then what, okay. what we have is that um, everything was given a reference number for a loss or a casualty at the end of, or during the war. And so we actually have very good historical documentation for Vietnam. And so we have the team that, that basically they said, okay, we know this plane went down in this area. And so they've done the historical research. They've gone out. They interview potential witnesses that may have seen it or know something about it. So... Um, we tend to call them witnesses, but I think in anthropology we would call them informants, so different kinds of informants, primary informants, secondary informants, people that actually saw something versus people that were just heard about it. And once we get that information, then we'll launch an investigation team out, and then they will go out and actually look for the crash site. And there's indications of it, the aircraft wreckage, a impact crater, uh, modifications to the landscape. And so having somebody on the team that um, can recognize changes in the landscape that you might see with a geoarchaeologist in your case or an archaeologist in general that may be able to look at the landscape and understand things is key, I think, and then documenting and mapping these things. At that point, then it's turned over to um, our operations center, or J3, and they um, map out which sites are going to be excavated based on different parameters. And then we launched the mission to uh, excavate it. And it's pretty much a traditional excavation, although uh, we have very strict time constraints and weather windows in certain areas that we can go into. I was reading um, an excavation manual once, and they were talking about um, laying out an excavation grid and that you wouldn't have to do this if it's steeper than 45 degrees on a slope. Right. And, but we do that all the time. So of course. It's, it's yeah. interesting the way we've had to adapt certain techniques. Um, the development of the um, electronic distance measures or um, laser transits or infrared transits that we use enables us to set up a grid very uh, much more quickly than we had originally. But it's uh, the, the kind of work that we do, you wouldn't. Would, would be very familiar to an archaeologist. So the kinds of skills that you have, you just have to be flexible and adaptable with the certain kinds of things that might happen in the field. 
Yeah, but by the same token, you're looking for something that's that's just a bit different, and you obviously have to make that adjustment. Um, what, let me just backtrack for one second. This is really intriguing. But do you use remote sensing methods to identify uh, victim sites? Well, we are. We have a ground penetrating radar, but um, we use that uh, occasionally in if the environment. Um, allows us to. But what we've done in the recent years, we've actually expanded as a sort of a specialized uh, archaeological section, our underwater work. And that relies or heavily on uh, remote sensing with magnetometers and side scan sonars and that, those kind of things that we're using. And that's going to be, I think that's going to be um, something that uh, we're going to expand in the future. So you're doing offshore work? For wreckages and uh, that kind of that kind of stuff. Or well, not? we got, we've been primarily we work with Navy divers uh, to work with it because there's some strict rules about who can dive when you have a Navy operation in it. Um, and we sent um, one of our anthropologists went to Navy dive school to be able to um, perform and work with the uh, Navy divers. And so they're the ones that were primarily doing the excavation with a, a video feed, so the um, work can be supervised from. Um, on the uh, the land based or the ship based uh, control center. So uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So um, that's going to be something that we're working on. We were very successful in the Republic of Palau, a small island group in the uh, Central Pacific, um, in excavating some crash sites. But usually we we don't go below a hundred or 120 feet below surface. And uh, so you set up your grids and you, under, you begin to undertake the excavations, correct? Yes. And how long are those excavations on average? Obviously, they're geared to what you're anticipating you're going to find, but uh, are there any constraints placed on it uh, internally, or do you just scope it out? Well, our policy within the lab is to try to completely excavate the site. Uh, as, oppo as opposed to doing a limited sample. Correct. So we don't we don't want to leave anything behind, and so what what we've tried to do is to focus on um, well the the length of the mission or the length of the excavation really depends on the kind of site it is. So if you have a large bomber crash from World War II that may have had eleven to twelve people on board, that may take us two to three missions. It may take us. Um, uh, four or five months to excavate, whereas a single-seater uh, fighter aircraft that was during World War II, so it was a slow-moving aircraft compared to a jet, we can go in, excavate a small area around the cockpit, and usually recover all the remains of the pilot. Okay, I'm gonna. Ha I'm afraid we're gonna have to take another break, and we will get back with Dr. William Belcher of JPAC and discuss the protocols that are being implemented to actually excavate and recovery a forensic site in a former war zone. And we will be back after these words. Experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover, and have they got stories to tell. Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein uh, with our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, I'm talking about the charge of JPAC, which is the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command of the United States Military, located on the island of Oahu. I am speaking to Dr. William Belcher, who is the uh, Deputy Lab Director for the laboratory in the, in, in the JPAC facility in Kauai. And Bill is walking us through a project, and we've gotten to the point where we have done the preliminary tracking work. We've isolated the location of, uh, of the potential remains, and we are setting up a traditional or at least a modified version of a traditional archaeological grid for excavation. And Bill, pick it up from there. Well, what... We continue to excavate, and we, we use um, uh, a lot of local labor, much like we did in Pakistan. Um, so it's the same kinds of things. You interact with the local populations. You hire people. Um, you get to know them, and you're very friendly with them. And then we continue to excavate. And as the material is recovered, we have to make decisions about what stuff we uh, material that we're going to keep because if you're excavating a plane crash, you cannot bring everything back to Hawaii for analysis. And, and that's where it's different from a traditional archaeological excavation, where we'd be retaining most of the materials, if not all. Okay. Uh-huh. So we have to make a decision on what's significant. And so what we focus on is things that are going to contribute to the identification. So if I have an aircraft and it crashed and I recover several parachutes, um, that's not going to help me with the identification because those weren't keyed into specific individuals. So we, we identify certain kinds of things. Can we find some sort of a, 
a data plate that has a serial number on it for the aircraft or the engine or the machine gun serial numbers that we can tie back to the historical record so that even though we've gone out and done the the historical research and the investigation or survey portion of it, I like to find something that can pin it down specifically and tie it directly back. So I like to find the engine data plates. Or is a serial number on a on a wreck, on a machine gun. So then there's no question that we are at the right plane. We're at the right excavation area. And so once and as we continue to excavate, one of the key positions that we have is our explosive ordnance disposal technicians. These guys are if if we can't have them on the team as well as our medics. We can't do the mission. And so these guys are specially trained, um, the medics in, in certain kinds of trauma. So we usually have people that have their independent duty corpsmen for the Navy or special forces medics because we need them out there in case something happens, particularly because we're in such remote areas, as well as the explosive ordnance disposal guys because obviously we're working on a lot of crash sites or war zones where there's landmines, and, you know, so safety is our number one priority. So we have these specially trained medics as well as the explosive guys. And so it's, it's, it's just something that you probably wouldn't find on a normal type of archaeological excavation. And, as we can, and then we, we, we find the materials and we package it up as evidence and we bring it back to the laboratory in Hawaii, and that's when the analysis begins. And so we have the archaeologists that we've hired specifically to do the archaeological work, but they're responsible for analyzing the artifacts. And so we have people here that are developing skills and specialties in the identification and analysis of um, modern, from World War II on, modern military artifacts, as well as then we have people that will take up the, the skeletal analysis. And then also on staff, we have three forensic odontologists or dentists, and they will be responsible for looking at the uh, dental remains. So there is a certain compartmentalization. I mean, you obviously have it regimented, so uh, it's processed in a very systematic uh, fashion. We only have about uh, four minutes left. Bill, give us a couple of examples of, uh, or at least one example, of an intriguing project that's either on the books or uh, planned for the future and uh, where you see this project going. What's a particularly intriguing project that you're uh, involved with right now? Well, one of the things that I've done in the past that we had worked on the historical aspect, and we went out to a site called, or an island called Macon Island, or Butari Tari, in the Republic of Kiribati, or Kiribati. And what we had, had done is we, we found and excavated a mass grave that had 20 individuals in it. 19 of them were U.S. Marines, and one of them was a local individual. And... They were fairly easy to identify because we had very good dental records and very good personnel records of these individuals. And they had gone out to um, take out a, a Japanese garrison at a seaplane base as a diversion from the main battle at Guadalcanal in August of 1942. And so these guys got, um, during the battle and everybody left, these, these individuals got left behind. And so the locals buried them, which was good for us because it helped preserve the bodies. When when we got back and identified them, I had, was able to attend a the memorial service at Arlington for these individuals, and I got to meet the family members and the men that served with them. And to me, that really struck home that there was such a noble mission 
and um, to meet uh, these family members, and it gives them a lot of closure um, and something tangible that puts the family at peace when they when they are able to um, receive the remains and and place their loved ones back in home territory. It's a it's 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 closure basically, correct? It's closure, and to me, I can't think of a more noble mission that I could use my archaeological skills for. Because I grew up in a military family, and so we lived with the the understanding that during the 1960s that my father might not come back from Vietnam. And so I sort of have an understanding of how these people feel, even though my father did come back. And uh, you have, up obviously, a number of other projects going on. Uh, real quickly, if you could tell us where they are and what, what you might be doing. Well, our, our one of the main things that we're we're doing now is that we're planning... Um, several projects, but the main one, which is released in the news, uh, is that we're going to be uh, continuing operations in North Korea. And we had stopped uh, working in North Korea in 2005. We actually started in 1996 to 2005 working with the uh, the North Korean government or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And we'll be continuing that, uh, and we're planning for it uh, sometime this spring. And that's uh, coming up, uh, like you say, this spring. And uh, is that one of the, this is uh, obviously blazing new horizons here? Obviously, working with uh, North Korea. Well, we we've worked with them in the past, so we've worked with North Korea for almost ten years, from 1996 to 2005. And so we're just going to try to continue operations that we halted in 2005, and begin going back to uh, some of the same excavation areas. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this program to an end. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. William Belcher of the JPAC, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command in Hawaii. And I hope uh, you've all absorbed a certain lesson on the transition from uh, traditional archaeology into the more applied field. And we've been pushing that particular agenda for the past couple of programs. We will segue in and out of it, but I think for all budding archaeologists, this is certainly something to keep in mind. It has a lot of ramifications going forward. Until uh, the next broadcast, thank you so much for listening. And remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.